welcome back everybody this is your weekly installment of exhaust the podcast about why nothing feels possible and we're still in pandemic hell world so we brought canada mike back on to discuss vaccines what's up mike not much not much excited to be back Mm -hmm. and we've got john here of course as usual so before we kicked off I wanted to talk about how I definitely cried while watching the movie Aaron Brockovich last night. I'd never seen it. You know, I know that that's like this classic. Julia Roberts is, of course, very charming. But um, my mother-in-law is a is a shrink, so that's a lot of like familial conversation, right? And I'm married to the daughter of a shrink, so <laughs> she has uh, lots of insightful things to say all the time. And she's been reading um, Scattered by Gabor Mate. And one of the things that we've been talking about, like just generally, is maturity in children, like when kids seem to be preternaturally mature. So I'm watching this movie, right? This isn't about Aaron Brockovich's actual life because I have no fucking idea what her actual life was what like. But in the film, one of the dynamics that plays out is a tension between Aaron Brockovich and her son. You know, because she gets this job, she has to provide for them, but she also has to fucking solve this insane PG&E water poisoning case. And at some point, he's very pissed at her and like won't talk to her because she's not spending any time with them or whatever. And she says to him, don't you want your mom to be good at her job? And I was like, man, I cannot think of a worse way to handle this situation than like saying <laughs> that to your like nine-year-old son. I was like, holy shit. And like, this is basically what Gabor Mate talks about. It's like exactly the type of things that lead to like ADD, you know, is that level of like inattention and also makes kids preternaturally mature. The moment of resolution between them is him reading through one of the case files and realizing that one of the girls in this California town that's been poisoned is his age and dying and that only his mom can help both of them. And then he's like, yeah, okay, I guess I'll go bring you back some eggs or whatever. This kid's 10, right? Mm-hmm. And she's like, she's like, oh, yeah, that would be great. And it's this moment where she feels her son has, like, truly understood her. And, like, now everything's okay. Because he's matured, right? He's displayed this level of precocity and like understanding the moral world beyond himself. But all that really means is that the child has understood at too early an age that the world is an incredibly unempathetic place and that world includes his parents. And so he has to adopt the work of empathizing for himself. And that is usually what precocious maturity means in a child you know is that they've had to do this i'm sitting here and i'm wondering my last psychologist moment where i was just like okay so that's sort of the psychoanalysis of this scene who is this movie for like who sees that and it's like yeah that's good like i get it and then you start to realize like what it's meant to do is not only to be like exculpatory to the protagonist, of course, that's his plot function, but to be exculpatory to the audience, right? Most of them are overburdened, two job households where the parents don't get to spend as much time with the kids. They probably should. Maybe they're latchkey kids or whatever. I mean, this is in 2000 when that type of shit is something people still talk about. And then I got to thinking about like what a hell the pandemic probably is for a lot of parents. And how we are about to see a bunch of kids who've been totally fucked up because they can't do school or any socializing and also are getting far less attention than they should because a lot of people have to work from home and things like that. Or are so desperate they're taking on extra jobs or whatever just to get by. It was just like a stray thought I had while watching that movie. Yeah. I just watched American Factory last night. And I was kind of thinking about that too, because like, there's that guy Wong who like basically left his family behind for who knows how long. Yeah, to very honorable work. dude. Yeah, he was definitely like it was cool that they gave him a focus mm-hmm. because you got to see not to go too far afield here, but yeah, it was 
it was an interesting movie and a big part of it. Well, he was talking like, you know, I always thought Americans were kind of like they had it really easy, but then I realized that Americans are very strong and they can work two jobs or something was like the way he put it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He was like, yeah, everybody has two jobs. It's weird to try to have the one. I mean, they work you to death, but you just have one in America. You yeah. Have two. 12 hours, two days off a month, but it's just one job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, yeah, I feel like it'll it'll be interesting because maybe that situation's already been happening in a lot of places, but now we're going to see it. Now it's going to be something happening to like maybe more professional class people to some extent um, in terms of like their children now entering like a new context mm-hmm. for maturing that maybe other people, like not not completely identical, but like maybe other people, this has just already been their lot in life is like, you know, like you have to feed your child before you can really care mm-hmm. about like their it's mental the Maslow's hierarchy of yeah. parenting. Yeah. So like if you're working on feeding them and that's the best you can do, then that's like the best you can do. And that's great. But that's maybe been happening to some people for a long time. Yeah, where, absolutely. Because it's not like, you know, we're in a village where like they can work all day, but then the kids around like a bunch of other adults who like care about him and stuff, you know, it's like you're, you have your household and if you're, you know, born and raised in America, chances are your household doesn't even include like grandma or your uncle and aunts anymore, you know? So it really limits the amount of people who are available to that child who are adults. And it really introduces instead of people like that often enough, it's going to be like hired professionals. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And you know, for it's just interesting to think about this stuff. I don't really have a lot substantive yeah, to no, say, but it's it's just sort of this background stuff I've been tracking as we go through. So, and I mean, I guess that's just been on my mind about what if normal's ever going to be returned to, right? And that a lot of that hinges on this these uh, insane vaccine promises. But Biden's just like, well, I brought a couple hundred million doses. I remember Mike was just like, yeah, that's not fucking up to Pfizer or Moderna. <laughs> like, that's not, uh, that's not what's going on. I live in California. We're doing a terrible job distributing this stuff. So, Mike, where the fuck are we at with all this? Things are not good uh, in general. Fuck. Um, yep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, perhaps to be, to be expected, but... Uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, actually the the problems that we outlined uh, the last episode may become salient more quickly um, than I had thought. So there are unspecified production problems right now, both with the Pfizer and the Moderna uh, vaccines. Um, I expect you'll start to hear similar things from Johnson Johnson, the others, uh, AstraZeneca, um, as things roll on. And uh, basically, you know, when they're asked for comment, they're not saying. So we don't know if that's a single-use thing. I, I kind of suspect that the early problems were probably to do with sourcing um, the just raw materials for doing uh, mRNA synthesis. But by now, like, uh, I think the, the figure that I gave last time, which was a month ago, was that lead times for... Fairly simple, simple uh, single-use components uh, were out to um, three months, up from you know one to two. They're now at seven uh, months. That's in over over one month of elapsed time. That's what the estimate has done. Um, so nobody is getting those components other than COVID manufacturers right now. Like that's not happening. There are all kinds of other pharmaceutical programs which are being disrupted right now. And that's, that's actually probably the first place that we should look. Um, you know, everyone's got their eyes on the vaccine shortages themselves, but in terms of some of the other uh, broader issues that we covered, um, we should also be looking at other products for the effects of COVID vaccine manufacturing on these, these systems. So this is, this is going to be broadly affecting this industry for a while and it's it's really I mean like you could you could even just say it's everything single use so we're to the point now where like it's very difficult to get um, glass vials uh, they're only 
Jesus. Few, yeah, there are only a few manufacturers of like, uh, in particular, amber glass uh, vials, which are used for storing light sensitive biopharmaceuticals. So uh, like dentists and stuff are having difficulty getting some of the just like basic supplies they need. Lots of other problems are, are cropping up and, uh, and are going to continue to crop up. And uh, obviously that has implications for the, the sort of mass fact. So I shouldn't go to the dentist is what I'm hearing from you. <laughs> um, I just got a, a set of Chinese dental picks, so I don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. So here's, here's what I'm wondering, right? Like we have these production problems and you said that these companies won't talk about it. They're just like, no comment, no comment. No yeah. comment. Yeah, so, you're, yeah. So what's the, as far as I know, I don't want to toot our own horn. We're the only people that's even talked about single use shit. It's like politically, no one's even discussing some of the basic problems here. So what's going on with that? Um, I'm, I'm a little bit puzzled by that. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's, there's clearly like a, a narrative formation here, right? Where, I mean, the, so we're still dealing with Pfizer's uh, original um, efficacy estimates, right? When you're seeing new uh, news publications, you know, uh, new articles being published that are describing the Pfizer vaccine, they're still giving the estimate that Pfizer initially gave, which was like a, not like a proper trial statistic or anything like that. It was just a quick look, like here are the first 200 infected people and the vast majority of them did not receive the vaccine. Okay, that's it's not it's not evidence, right? Like it's it, that was a marketing press release. And if you go and you look in the uh, New England uh, Journal of Medicine paper that they published, this is the, supposed to be the support. Uh, I didn't even see any mention of like what they were measuring. So they didn't say very much about the fact that it was PCR. So these are just these are not like hospitalizations. They're you know, the efficacy, efficacy with respect to what? Well, whether or not um, coronavirus was detected in their blood by PCR, not, not any of the things that we care about, which are the clinical endpoints. Okay. So, I mean, you know, PCR indicates infection, you know, maybe in some cases, but that's, that's really not what we're going for in terms of protection. Anyway, uh, those are those are still the estimates that we're working with, um, and they haven't been updated. And it's like, look, like if you guys are going into your data and releasing these PR releases, you know, quick looks, like, okay, first two hundred infections, give me more infections. There have been more infections in your trial population. the The primary completion date for the trial isn't until August, so they're going to have to cough up something in August, but they may not say anything until then, right? So they can run with this like 95% efficacy number the entire time. Nobody's going to question it, right? And that's that's like the discourse, right? Nobody, nobody's saying like, hey, man, like, can we get some, like, like please, please, sir, give us a little bit yeah. more data. Like, may I have some more? Just, may I have some more data? <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, and I, I, I saw that they there was a hack and like maybe some data had been released. Like I, I, I certainly never got my hands on that, but it would be nice to see some more data uh, and to know what the hell is going on with that. Cause you, you know, they can, you know, that there's, they don't care if they're unblinding data um, as long as it's, you know, good for their, their share prices. So if, if no one's, if no one's questioning on that level, they're definitely not going and interviewing like Pfizer employees on production floors. Right. There's no journalists going out and, and talking to, you know, biopharmaceutical manufacturers and their employees about what is your process and what are its risks and mm -hmm. what does that mean for us as a society? Nobody's doing that. Right. Like they're, right. they're interested the, in maintaining a, a, a narrative. Yeah. The discourse around this seems to be that requests for more data or doubts about the industry's ability to meet its own deadline are the same thing as conspiracy theorizing. Yeah. And also saying the vaccines don't work, which is, I'm sure there are actually plenty of people who are conspiracy theorizing and do think the vaccines don't work, but I'm not one of them. And I have deep concerns about what these people say they can deliver and if that's actually possible. Yeah, I would like for it to work. <laughs> yeah, I certainly I'm would like, be among the people I, who would be happy if it worked. <laughs> I, I am itching for that shit to work. But, you know, it's one of the things that I've been wondering is so like, 
interest rates are still low. Like, why can't we just get a bunch of capital, build out some good stainless steel like facilities? You know, I don't know what like how long you would need to get that up and running, but like, let's say we're looking at forever vaccinations. Yeah, it has to make some amount of financial sense for somebody to be like, okay, let's like throw up some of these places. And yeah, just to have the physical capital available. To we'll you. eat the costs in the beginning. We'll take out a shit ton of loans, whatever. Like it's easy to do that if you're a huge company. But then, you know, like in a year or two's time, like you're the one who basically owns the industry if no one else did that. And they're still dealing with trying to ramp up single use production like that's just what i'm wondering is like i know companies will basically never talk about any of this until it's yeah. already done so you'll never know if they're doing this or not but it seems kind of like to me just from like if you're a business person and from that person's perspective this is like an easy way to like put yourself advantageously in a very likely future market mm-hmm. i don't um, know it's not really a question or at it's least to like win a, a bunch of or to like basically just win a bunch of fucking good pr for yeah. your stock price you know yeah so that's that's gonna happen organically to an extent if these shortages continue um and that's because already what's happening with products that were under development the processes were um uh started development before COVID on single use there. Um, normally what you do is you start with a, like a bench scale kind of reactor that might be like 10, 20 liters, whatever. And then you would do maybe one or two scale up steps to get to your industrial uh, size reaction. And that's just to prove that the process that you have works on each of these scales. Right. So, and it's roughly controlled the same. Mm. Um, so uh, the scale-ups for those single-use processes now, they can't do it on, on single-use. So they're going back to stainless now anyway. Um, so that's, that's considered um, in most of these development processes like kind of like a temporary, like, you know, this is, this is just there to show like, it, it's, it's because like management has a formula, right? Like, so it, it, really if, you, if you're doing scale-up in stainless, like it doesn't, tell you anything about whether or not that's going to work later in the same volume of uh, single use. Um, so they're, mm. they're just doing this anyways, without realizing that like probably the conclusion is that ultimately your final industrial scale is going to be stainless because these shortages are going to continue for a while. So I think, I think organically that will happen to, to an extent. Um, but that may also change the, the logic of whether or not those processes were ever economical in the first place and where they were going to be implemented and these kinds of things. So I, I, I don't know that that's going to like save us, you know? <laughs> but in terms of, in terms of um, stainless production of vaccines uh, it's it, there, you know, I think we, we may have a problem there because there's a bit of lock-in happening. Um, and that's because, okay. So with the emergence of these new strains, everyone's realized that if you were on some traditional, uh, process technology um, like Sanofi Pasteur has um, uh, a number of uh, like traditional non-mRNA technologies that they use for their yearly flu vaccine. Mm. And I'm, I'm sure they would like to use those. I think they had a program for uh, the coronavirus vaccine on those processes. If you're on those at this point, it's clear that you're not going to be able to keep up because generally those processes, you're gonna get at most a new, uh, one new product a year out of that line. And you know, with the emergence of these new uh, variants, it's quite clear that the, the advantages of the mRNA technology, which allow for relatively rapid retooling, like you can get done in six months maybe, are gonna be dominant. So right now, Sanofi is saying, we're gonna manufacture Pfizer's product at our plants which is nice, right? Like it alleviates one level of pressure because it's like, okay, we're going to have some level of standardized production and it's the same process in all these plants. But at the same time, it, you know, the, the problem was not that Pfizer couldn't get enough manufacturing floor space, right? It's, it's something to do with their backend raw materials or, or single use systems, something like that. And this, like, so Sanofi's involvement or Sanofi's use of that technology um, doesn't necessarily help us there. And it may require an entirely different process to get some kind of like, uh, like what you might call robust, like forever vaccine. So even assuming that like 
we have vaccines that are anywhere from like 80 to 90% effective or whatever. Um, so it doesn't even like assuming that they're that effective, it still doesn't sound like we can produce enough on a like epidemiological level to have a public health effect or like it's, it's certainly possible that we yeah. can't produce enough. It's not that the vaccine like doesn't work qua a vaccine. It's about the industrial political context in which the vaccine is being released. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's, it's worth emphasizing that, right? Like what we are trying to do is um, like, you know, first off, like what is, what is actually the role of the vaccine within medicine and within medical technology, right? Like as in, in general, pandemics are not stopped by vaccines. Vaccines are historically what happens, you know, they're the, the uh, medicines that we deploy near the end of a long program to eradicate a disease, um, typically by sanitation. Mm, and, they're, yeah. and they're most effective in places with good sanitation. Right. So you redu- reduce the disease. Yeah, Los Angeles is fucked. <laughs> well, there, <laughs> there are problems, right? Like there, there are problems with, with uh, modern sanitation in Western, Western countries that are not being addressed. Right. And, and that's, that goes into the mask issue and some of these lockdown issues as well. But um, you know, the point is, is that the vaccine alone it's kind of a long shot to begin with, right? Because the disease burden is not decreasing. It's not, you know, um, the, we're not extirpating a, a disease on its back foot in a, in a clean country, right? And, and vaccines have difficulty in, they're less efficacious in countries that have worse hygiene. That's just the way things are. So if in the absence of like actual infection control measures, like, you know, actual track and trace, actual like stopping travelers, these kinds of things. What we probably need is like Fauci's, uh, you know, latest estimate he ch- after he changed his mind from 50 to 60%, you know, of uh, the population taking the thing to like 90%. In that case, 90% probably is right. You probably do need 90% of the mm-hmm. population to take it. Okay. So that's, that's fine, but it's not 90% over all time right? You don't have forever to do this. You have until the strain that you've raised the vaccine against is no longer the prevalent one in the population. And that's the case in some countries already that we have, uh, you know, the South South African variants appear to be spreading very rapidly there. So are the vaccines going to be effective in South Africa? Well, that's an open question, you know, and if you ask the, (laughs) the drug company reps, you get some interesting interpretations of their data on that. But, um, you know, the, the reality is that probably what we need to be doing is to uh, be vaccinating like 90% of the population at once um, over kind of like a couple of month period. Because if it's every, you know, like four to six months that a new variant appears, even if your production technology can keep up, you need to be um, producing and distributing at the scale required to nail that supermajority of the population within that time frame. So that's that's the problem. Yeah, that's the burden. That's the hurdle. And so it's basically totally unprecedented what we're doing. Yeah. Like absolutely yeah. no precedent for this. And what we would like to be true, I think like what you sort of just laid out is like we're producing it so that we have vaccines to meet new dominant variants as they appear. Now, is it even imaginable that in that situation, like you would eradicate COVID eventually via that level of vaccination? Or is that just like a hope that we really don't know if it would even work? That's kind of how it sounds because it's never been done, I guess, in this Mm. way where Mm. vaccination was the primary method by which you, like you said, extirpated a, like a disease or virus. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it's, it's very difficult to say, right? Like, you, yeah. could, could you produce a model that says it's possible? Yeah, I'm sure you could, right? But it, practically speaking, with these industrial issues, um, with uh, political issues, you know, other kinds of things, like the, the optimum, um, you know, vaccine production and distribution strategy is very unlikely to be obtained. So you, you also need kind of like almost a safety margin, on top of that, right? To in order for us to really feel like, okay, like this is likely going to work. And and frankly, for me, I mean, you know, I I don't doubt that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines can raise an immune response. Like that, I 
I don't have a problem yeah. with that at all. Yeah. You know, but the, the question is, is for how long and, and to what extent um, is it efficacious, you know, in the case of all of these, like, I mean, you just have public health authority deciding, okay, we're just going to give people one dose. You know, so that's not what the manufacturer saying is okay, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, it, it's, and this has other kinds of effects, right? And we're not dealing with those either. Like, you'll never hear anyone talking about like, okay, well, what happens if all these people who are getting one dose um, go out and they are infected, but because they were partially vaccinated, they don't have a really bad pathology to uh, uh, a very virulent strain that would otherwise have just like killed them dead, right? And what if they end up spreading that and and all the one dose vaccinators are able to spread it. And then everyone who hasn't got a vaccine gets that, right? Then mm-hmm. those people will die, right? So, yeah, and then you, all of that vaccine rollout is now moot because it, it just, there's a whole nother strain. I mean, this is the, right. people are already starting to, to sweat the South Africa variant data on all this stuff is a little bit spotty, but there is, there is evidence. Um, and this is all preprints, you know, whatever, not that peer review means anything anymore, but, um, <laughs> the, you know, there, there, there is evidence to the effect that, um, the, one of the South Africa variants escapes, um, uh, antibodies. So from the Wuhan strain, uh, patients who have been previously infected by, uh, the Wuhan strain, those, those antibodies are not effective against, uh, one of those South Africa variants. So we've already got one out there that al- almost certainly shows, in my opinion, reduced, um, uh, or it sh- sh- escapes the, probably the vaccines, probably both Pfizer and Moderna. Right. Yeah. And we don't know for sure, but it's starting to feel that way. I mean, yeah. for, I'm looking at like how the U S has handled this. So before we started in earnest, I mentioned to you guys that the first uh, out of the first 12 amendments to the American Constitution in our history, uh, 11 were about limiting the role of the federal government. Yeah. Uh, we got a, a bonus like six during the uh, Civil War that expanded <laughs> it. <you know? laughs> um, and I think maybe like it, you know, you just look at the major crises or big efforts like new deal and um, reconstruction. So I'm sure it's not all that, but it's, I think it speaks to a very powerful strain in culture, governance and politics in America. And when I read that council on foreign relations report, that was one of the major things that they said. I mean, some of it was just like the people who were supposed to do things just weren't hired by the Trump administration. So they couldn't do them because they weren't in those posts. But uh, the, a huge portion of the burden was on the fact that our government is not actually federalized and the communications between municipalities, state governments and the federal government are either non-existent or have deteriorated significantly over time as public coffers have been drained, there have been multiple reports that have been released at the federal level being like, Hey, we should really fucking handle this. And politicians have more or less paid lip service to it. And then I think largely out of ideological commitment, not restocked our stockpiles or expanded offices where they need to be expanded. Like it can be true that the CDC fucked a lot of stuff up and is also grossly underfunded um, and squeezed and those two things probably have a relationship with each other no that's that's for sure i mean like there's there's no question that if you if you have uh, an institution which is not funded uh, to the extent necessary for it to perform its function all you're going to get is uh you know corrupt and demoralized administrators who are looting it I mean, it's just a, a regular pattern throughout our governments, mm-hmm. you know, like they, they cut a, a, an institution back to the point where it doesn't work anymore. And then ultimately the, the resulting internal dysfunction and corruption justifies getting rid of it entirely or whatever. Right. So, yeah. I mean, it's an old scheme, right? Yeah. I do think too, that the absence of funding maybe is one aspect of it, but I think even a well-funded bureaucracy can be utterly useless. Oh, sure. Um, and that, so it's not to say that like, if only we had given the CDC a bunch of money, they would have been like highly effective, but that's no. perhaps one part of the puzzle, mm-hmm. but there is too, just the fact that you can have places staffed with extremely 
like narcissistic boomer admin types um no matter how much money they have like you'll run into that problem too which is it's one of the not to say something completely off topic but ivan illich talks about how in his book de-schooling society like for like 50 years we were like schooling is so underfunded and poured massively more and more money into it seemingly getting no better results for lower income children yeah. even in places where mm-hmm. the lower income schools would receive a lot more money and he was saying like at what point is it going to be okay to begin to question like the very system itself yeah. as perhaps no longer working and i think in some cases too we're also running up against that in a lot of our government institutions which well, is yeah not- just like look at what happened with the the fucking what happened at the Capitol. And now everybody's just like, God, we really need more anti-terror funding. And it's like, <laughs> fucking seriously? <laughs> like, <laughs> how could that be any sane person's conclusion to what happened there after the psychotic... We have to stave off the boogaloo shamans. Right, yeah, exactly. And now they just put like a huge gate around the White House, you know? So it's really, you know, it dumbest possible solution to that problem. Um and so I do think that there's a lot to that, you know, like we don't want to just say like up the funds and all this will be resolved. That's not what's happening. I mean, I was thinking about this, right? So Mike, you sent me that um, Reuters, the very damning Reuters piece on the CDC yeah. and how they handled it in the beginning yeah. and how they would just like send people into the field who had no, no idea what they were doing. And that totally fucked up its ability to perform at the critical early stages of this, because the critical stages of a pandemic are the beginning of the pandemic. Yeah. Right. Like it's even getting memory hold now that there were two day to one or two week intervals where critical things had to be done and they just weren't, or they were fucked up. Like I remember that watching those things expire being like, wow, we're really just on a downward spiral here. And so I'm thinking like, these people are well-schooled, I assume, you know, get put through these processes. And then I start to think about like sort of the class structure of that. Mm-hmm. I was like, what's higher ed's role really in producing these people? Mm-hmm. Is it about producing competence or is it about hoovering up loan money to expand real estate empires and then just shitting out C tier students as fast as possible so that the Saban family can make more money. <laughs> that's certainly possible. You know, um, I don't want to say that that's actually it, but like one starts to have to ask a question when an entire shelf of bureaucratic workers are incapable of doing their jobs. Yeah. You need to have some questions about the system that produced those very workers, right? Yeah, yeah I, it was I, interesting that the one guy, there was like one or two like competent seeming people involved, like the guy who was the head of the person who went to Japan to get the people off the cruise ship. Lawler, I think his name was. Yeah, he sort of seemed like he knew exactly what needed to happen in each situation because he was able to explain to the Reuters journalist how like completely clueless a lot of people around him were who the CDC had working with him. He turned a couple of people away from getting on the boat because they had no experience in battling infectious diseases. And then once they got people off the boat and onto a plane, multiple CDC personnel walked onto the plane and broke quarantine, exposing themselves and others to a highly (laughs) where people had symptoms and were like put behind a plastic sheet, like kept apart as much as they could be in that situation. Like not more, like not just once did this happen, but like twice, like another, the next time they landed, it also happened. And that he was just sort of like, you know, like what's going on? Like, this is insane. It was kind of what you felt behind his words. And it was sort of like, okay, so there's a handful of people who have both like experience and expertise who clearly know what needs to be done, but it almost felt like that guy should be like more in charge or something. Like he should be in charge of personnel, I guess, because whoever is like, you know, maybe that person's also good at their job, but they just have no resources or ability to do anything. Like that's also very possible. And so they've just been working with what they have and getting the people they can get. I don't really know. There's probably no way to know unless the CDC brings us in as consultants to fix it. And then we can. Which they should. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to go apply for a job at McKinsey now. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's that's also also the case, right? And we can talk about funding, I think, more productively. Like what would be required, for instance, to actually do a contact tracing program in the U.S., especially now that, you know, the cat's out of the bag, like what would that look like? Because obviously that would need to be massively funded. But yeah, the the Lashian frame is totally necessary for understanding what's happening at those high levels. Um, and I, I think, you know, fundamentally, narcissism is about this kind of uh, detachment of the ego ideal or the image that you have of yourself from, from reality, right? It's this incredibly grandiose thing that you lash out uh, whenever someone questions it or whatever. Right? The overwhelming impression that I have of the activity of these public health management. Uh, a good example for me is in, in Canada with um, Teresa Tam, who's running uh, Health Canada, and I think, you know, making a hash of it frankly, like she's responsible for the deaths of many Canadian seniors. Um, and a lot of this comes down to, you know, she, she was in public uh, giving a speech at one point or being questioned about her role and, and got upset and said something like, you know, I work like 50 hour weeks, 60 hour weeks, like, you know, I put in so much effort into this job, etc. And, you know, when you actually go and look at the operations of Health Canada, their surveillance system for like pandemic surveillance system consisted, from what I can tell, of a few Python scripts that were written by interns that collected like, Jesus. yeah, like news articles off the Reuters feed, right? So the head of- It's just uh, like health, a, it's just a RSS feed, basically. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and like, like, so literally, like you would have been more informed reading- like 4chan or reddit or like twitter and you were like and, and, you, <laughs> and were, you were yeah like, and like you were those were the people who knew what was coming first yeah you know this is someone of uh hong kong extraction she never bothered to call up anyone in hong kong and say hey guys like what's going on it doesn't make any sense right and then subsequently it's just all been about this kind of like spin and perception management and there, there is no leadership. Is it higher education? I don't know. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's the, the lashing frame is right, right? Like this is a personality structure that's incredibly common. And it's very difficult to, to root out, you know, like, mm -hmm. I mean, anyone who has experience in any kind of corporation, like liberal institution, NGO, whatever, I mean, you're, if you kind of know what's going on within your little area, like your overwhelming experience of that institution is going to be like incompetence everywhere else. Right. And it's just, those are the people that we stop. Right. I mean, here. Okay. So I want to, just for the listener, I was talking with a friend the other day who also shares more structural analyses of the world. Like that's generally how I think of things. I don't generally think of things like, uh, personalities or things like that. But after 2020, I had to realize that like bureaucratic management, leadership and like statesmanship are actual things. They matter in very critical moments. And so I don't want to hang my hat on like all of there being this dominant personality structure that uh, is fucking up society or whatever the lashing frame, as you call it, Mike, but you can't ignore it at this point like i had to do some serious rethinking about some of my like uh i would say more like marx-ish biases after this because it didn't seem to just be like structural institutional failures there seemed to be actual very diffuse failures of character yeah yeah that's that's right on in my opinion well and if you want to come at it that way like personality it's formed through the structural processes of societal reproduction. That's what um, Ivan Illich calls school. It's the reproductive organ of society. And what happens to kids in there is what makes the new generation of people, but also what happens to kids at home, etc. And the 20th century saw the rise of television, radio, the internet, TikTok, OnlyFans, like whatever you want to name, like it happened <laughs> yeah. 21st century Tumblr, for some of those things. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. A lot has changed like pretty rapidly. And the amount of effect that that's had on people's personality structures, like on mass, is probably 
there's work done on it and I'm not up on a lot of it, but I'll, I would guess, and probably even the experts would agree with me that it's not well understood, not in a very comprehensive way, like what's going on with people. And I think that that probably, you know, like you could go in a Marshall McLuhan direction with it and say that a lot of the various new mediums that have occurred have probably had a systemic structural effect on the way that personalities form especially in terms of like the general things that happen in a family setting. Like Mike and I have talked about the post-war generation where you have just like completely shell-shocked parents and their kids are being raised on the TV. And it's like, what does that do to you? You know, which I'm sure a lot of baby boomers, like that was their situation. Yeah. I mean, you talk to any baby boomer about watching Mad Men, especially if they're white, right? Because I mean, that's really what that show is about. I mean, you don't even need to be woke to like make that argument. It takes place yeah, in no. fucking Connecticut in the sixties, yeah. um, in New York. <laughs> uh, you know, but uh, one of the things that I noticed in talking to people of my parents' generation about that is that one of the reasons that show was so resonant is that it explained to them in some way the distance of their parents. Yeah, you know, like I mean, if you just think about who Don Draper is as a father, yeah, and then you think about who Betty Draper is as a mother. And that these are actually type of archetypes. And what was fascinating to people is that it recreated an impersonal way through which an entire generation of American adults who grew up being raised by the television or neglected by, like you said, incredibly shell-shocked and destroyed parents because of their war experiences, because of their time growing up during the Depression or whatever, it allowed them a way to try to understand who these completely inaccessible parental figures were. I mean, that is sort of the secret sauce of that show's success. It's not just a type of Americana nostalgia, I would say, that there is actually something deeper going on in its success. That makes me respect that show a little bit more. I had a a poor (laughs) opinion of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, but, but that that does make sense, you know, and I, and I think people should should understand that's what we're talking about, right? It's not it's not about name calling. We're all narcissists, right? We're mm-hmm. all formed by these these structures. Yeah, there's a reason why I'm the person that promotes the podcast, and John very wisely <laughs> stays away from social media. I get DMs all the time, being like, "Is John on Twitter?" I was like, "No, he's a healthy person." <laughs> like, <laughs> it's one of the steps to getting yeah. healthy. And you, yeah, you, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I am the soldier leaning over John yeah. as he sleeps in his bed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I have to say I'm still extremely fucked up as a person. I'm just not, <laughs> yeah. Like that's yeah. all that is. It's, there was in Studs Terkel's book, Hard Times, about the Great Depression. They were interviewing a guy who I guess like his parents were came up at some time during the Depression. And he was saying like, it's really like all they care about is money and they think money's more important than anything else in the world. And I absolutely hate that. Like I can't understand it. And it's driven a huge wedge between us because like fundamentally we're just different people because of that. And he even identified like they're so terrified, like 50 years on of not having any money. It's like completely dominated their entire life. And I remember being like, you know, that's crazy to think about. Like, like that level of like trauma that just lasts and like totally changes not only mm-hmm. your parents' life, but your life by extension and so on. And that's, yeah, that's like probably, you know, for people like us, I'll admit that I don't often think about this stuff if I'm not actively looking into it. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And also like often the like intergenerational trauma discourse or whatever gets weirdly essentialist, especially when it starts to trot out very sp- specious genetic arguments for it Mm, which i've seen uh you know and i immediately become allergic to it i'm like i don't want to hear fucking any of this because usually it's like reinforce it's like reifying racial identity or something as it's trying to argue wokely for this like idea of how we inherit these problems but in fairness like there's not nothing to some of these ideas and the way that they shape us. I mean, parenting affects you 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. We don't need to have recourse to genetics to argue about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, and, and I mean that's that's what Gabor Mate is getting at, right? So mm-hmm. just you know, it's it's worth bringing us back to to that starting note in some way. The the existence of these public health officials who are more concerned with images and these kinds of things than some type of like internal value structure has a lot to do with the overall uh, structure of parenting and of childhood, of development of those individuals and of their personalities in society. And a lot of that has to do with stressed parenting, right? And we've had generations and generations of stressed parenting um, in our countries at this point. And, you know, we have very characteristic kinds of personalities now that emerge uh, from these backgrounds. Um, and not all of them are useful in a pandemic, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, this is a situation we have to deal with and, and we have to be real about, you know, what are we capable of as, as individuals and what are we best suited to? Um, and not everyone is suited to running a public health agency. Yeah, which is to... fine because you don't yeah. need everybody to run it. Yeah. You need some people to run it. Yeah. You know, um, like, so here's an interesting question, right? We've talked before about the Hamilton-Jefferson divide a lot on this podcast. It's mm-hmm. something I talk about all the time when I'm doing like my think tank work or whatever, because we're actually interested in like drafting white papers mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So we really have to like consider and figure out like, especially for the stuff that's a little bit more like general public uh, facing, like figure out ways to incorporate more centralized ideas into the American tradition, because that's the way that they will become explicable to people. Right. Like that's important to do. Now here's what's interesting to me. I'm reading this council on foreign relations report and it's just like, well, basically none of this is centralized. None of it's federalized. It's all a huge problem. I'm going to have a cybersecurity friend on, late next month to talk about this. And yet it's not like we're living in this actual state of decentralized libertarian freedom for the lack of centralization. Right. Right. Because there's this argument that like centralization makes you unfree. And usually people are pointed to very centralized authoritarian, whatever the actual political content of that word is, who fucking knows? I think it's basically like a Gene Sharp CIA psyop, but we know what I mean by that, at least casually. And they're like, See, look at the unfreedom of this, of this scenario. But I think it's entirely possible to have a completely like brutal and oppressive regime that has centralized nothing that would actually benefit the public and has, uh, basically it's share of like monopoly on violence and coercion and like little else. Right. And for the media to be part of that coercion. Yeah. I think it's like, you know, if you look at what was the cold war about the economy and monetary policy and like defense are what absolutely needed to be given more like protection money and put more at the federal level. And, you know, as they say, like firewalled from any kind of democratic apparatus. And I think that's what we're left with now. It's like, you know, like what is in the hands of central authorities, our monetary policy and like the military. Yeah. Um, and there's a bunch of people who, who like knows what they do in all kinds of offices in Washington. I'm sure maybe they do a lot of stuff, but in terms of major effects on us, I don't know about it. Yeah. It goes unseen. Well, and all the stuff that used to be, public now belongs to like the NGO sphere. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Which isn't by and large, right. As somebody who's like part- <laughs> continues to participate in that is more often than not more about securing salaries for people than actually handling any of the things that they say they're going to handle. Yeah. Right. Like yeah. that's, I think we can just say that like, that's most of what, that's why it's a very gatekeeping backbiting environment, mm-hmm. you know, and that strangles attempts at democratic control over these issues because you have like fucking 10 Ford funded foundations that are suddenly shitting their pants, that there are everyday people that want to take control over what is basically putting food on their table. Yeah. Right. Like once you start to think about it like that, you start to understand how we have an oligarchy that has basically a hegemonic 
middle class ideology, right? That's how that works. Yeah. And, and, you know, this whole complex um, allows the, I mean, it, part of its purpose is to, is to diffuse responsibility, right? So that if you're a, um, uh, a small NGO or something, and you want, you're on, sitting on the board and you want to do something, but you don't really want to take uh, responsibility for it. You can hire a larger NGO to con consult. So you, <laughs> you pay them some money and they make your conclusion for you. Yeah. And then you do the unpopular thing because the consultant told you to, and away you go. And the government uh, loves to make use of that function as well. So it's corporate yeah, it's, it's the human McKinsey peed. Yeah. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. That's, <laughs> like that's, that's 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 especially gross, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean that that that's how that works. And I mean, this is something that I think this is where it's important to return to some some ancient thinkers, right? Because I think that there's just this type of fundamental wisdom in what they're dealing with, and these works have endured because they remain relevant, whether you agree with them or not. So, in Aristotle's Politics, one of the things that he talks about is he was like, "Look, if everybody." is responsible for something, then effectively no one is responsible for it. Yeah. Which people tend to think is like um, an argument against communism or whatever. Not really. It's basically an argument for there being accountability and leadership structures. Yeah. Right. Is really what that's about. I assume Aristotle would have been very against communist ideas given his aristocratic sympathies, but that's not the point he's making there per se. Mm -hmm. Right. He's actually talking about the way a society is able to interpret duty and the license and consequences arrogated to that. Right. Yeah, I, I think in, in that context is very helpful to um, to look at uh, the Islamic tradition, um, which classifies obligations, the Farid, as either uh, Fard al-Ain, which are individual obligations, or Fard al-Kifaya, which are communal obligations. And so a, an entire community can become sinful if everyone leaves a communal obligation, but not everyone has to perform it, right? And we don't, we don't really have that sense or any way of like engaging with this notion of communal obligation anymore. I mean, clearly we're all communally obligated to look after elderly and helpless people who are in long-term care homes in this society and who are dying, uh, you know, by the dozens daily um, with, with, you know, government and regulatory officials saying nothing about it. I mean, in, in Ontario, it's just an absolute disgrace. Um, you have these companies, one of which is run by former premier, uh, Mike Harris paying out um, dividends to their shareholders while these people are dying. They're not, they're not doing anything. They're not actually doing anything to rectify this situation. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we have to be able to recognize these um, communal obligations and get some way of, of addressing them again, because clearly we don't have one anymore. Yeah. I remember I was just reading about one of the examples Al Ghazali gives is, you know, we have, hardly any Muslim doctors in a lot of places. So no Muslim doctors who can give testimony in court, which, you know, for reasons you had to be a Muslim to give testimony in certain cases. And he's like, but no one wants to be a doctor because you don't make a lot of money that way. They all want to be religious scholars, which is sort of like today's version of becoming a doctor or an engineer yeah. um, and how people flock to what will bring them worldly prestige and wealth. And they leave behind basic, you know, obligations and how it's, it causes problems here and in the hereafter and that sensibility because you you're sinful one, but you're also like causing issues in your community. Like they're communal obligations because the community needs these things. And yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, mm -hmm. like if you've ever been in a place that especially like university settings or certain kinds of jobs and you're like, Oh, like most of the stuff that happens in this organization, like no person takes responsibility for it. Like, so yeah. like, let's say something goes wrong here. You're like, Oh, like let's talk to the guy who's in charge of the whole department or something. And he's like, Oh, I don't deal with that. Like that's the so-and-so <laughs> person. And they're like, Oh, like that's not really a part of my job description. Like, so I just, you know, like that's basically what you're going to get at every turn. And like most of the things happening in a building like fall under no one's authority and no one's responsible for them 
And I feel like often when you see like just a total crisis of something not running well, like that's at least the way that I'm interpreting stuff. And maybe I'm just looking for it at this point. It's like, you know, like nobody matured into adults in this building. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. You're totally. all still a bunch of children who are like, I don't want to deal with that because it's not fun to me. And it's just like, right. you know, and on my, from my point of view, someone who's totally involved, it's like somebody give me the power, you know, like give me like, <laughs> yeah. give me a whip and just send me into the building. <laughs> right. 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 So, I mean, here's another way I, I, I want to think about this. Like it could be true that all these people are in some ways, certainly I have been, you know, um, a yeah. grown child in my life and mm -hmm. have not taken Certainly. responsibility for things. And I can see the ways in which I have let down peers, colleagues, you know, um, or whatever. Um, and those were very painful lessons to learn. And likely I have a few more to learn, but I want to suggest this as well, that I don't think it can be totally chalked up to um, a sort of like lack of development, let's say. So Mike and I were talking the other day about, um, we were just like, how, in what way could Joe Biden be considered Catholic? And I suggested he should convert to Anglicanism so he could have his nihilism without uh, any self-deceit um, because it's unclear to me that he even takes communion or, and if he does, like actually respects that. I left the church because I had respected its dogma as dogma. I wasn't yeah. trying to turn it into a buffet of things that I liked while I left things that I didn't like. Mm -hmm. That's not fidelity to the church. That's something else, right? Okay, so there's that. And we were talking about the book Pilgrim's Progress, or John Bunyan, about the, the guy who hears God's voice and leaves his wife and children to die to go seek God or whatever. And I was like, that's just baked into like what America is. Maybe mm. we should do an American canon on that that tale I would um, that. yeah but that that's part of what's an operation here too mm -hmm. right is that this is essentially the the power of culture as, as we would understand it end of end of tr tradition so it's not just that people have malformed identities or whatever it's that especially with that stat i tried out about the amendments to the constitution we also exist in a political context in America where people are fundamentally allergic to certain ideas of obligations to the other. Yeah. And that that is a founding element of what America is. And to correct for that, if it's even possible, is very laborious. I mean, this is, this is a problem all over the revolution. If you read the letters of Hamilton trying to like discipline general Gates or any of these guys, it's a huge pain in the ass. They're all super suspicious of each other. <laughs> and they all think that they should run their own thing because the colonies are their own fucking countries to them. And it's incredibly hard to cohere this out of their, like there's very little sense of obligation in certain critical moments of the Revolutionary War. And then that goes on in the Constitutional Congress and things like that. That's why Hamilton was doing like some very early Overton window work. Yeah. When he gave a six hour speech to the Continental Congress about how we needed to dissolve all of the states and just turn them into electoral zones. <laughs> you could just hear Virginians <laughs> shitting their pants. <laughs> like, but it made a different type of federalism far more appealing to them yeah. than the psycho shit that yeah. he was offering <laughs> because yeah. he was so embittered by his experience of logistics procurement and being... Washington's right hand. Well, it's really is... funny is this goes back to when John Smith and the boys came over. Mm. So they were sent over by, I don't remember a lot of names, so forgive me, but basically like the big ecclesiastical guy in England um, who was secretly a Spanish spy had placed like five different spies of his own or so amongst the crew of that ship who no one knew where they came from. Even historians don't seem to really know anything about them, except that they were placed as spies. Um, everyone was immediately like super paranoid. They were given a list of who would be the leaders of the new colony, but it was in a lockbox and they weren't allowed to open it until they made land in America. So immediately everyone was like, what the fuck is this about? And this is Odysseus's bag of wind. Yeah. Oh, totally. Like <laughs> everything is, it's, 
everyone is basically like, you know, like got to open it. They didn't open it until they got there, even though they were all freaked out about it. So they're on this ship. Things are kind of holding together. They have a few natural leaders, respected older people. Uh, But as soon as they get there, like they open it up, they find out that like some of these total randos are on the council, basically. And people are just kind of not happy. They almost kill John Smith on the way for treason because they suspect him of trying to like overthrow the captain. Somehow they make it to America and immediately John Smith just like goes off on expeditions for like food pelts and like trading with native Americans. And is basically just like, I'm just going to do my own thing. Like, fuck this, you know, I'll like make sure that people here stay fed and things work out while everyone else kind of does like weird politicking with each other. And it's just like a completely like one of the most non-unified ventures you could ever imagine as like the foundational, you know, colony of America. It's just interesting how at every level this is the story. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think there's the perfect phrase that comes out of military jargon for America, which is a goat rodeo. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's impossible to fucking wrangle. You know, it took a civil war to really expand the federal government. Same with the depression. Like these are deep, deep crises, right? That had to, I mean, if you think about it, the reason we have a highway system is only because Eisenhower, after World War I, did a victory tour of the United States and realized that there was no easy way to actually get across this fucking country. Yeah. Even after the railroads, right? So this is, these are some of the, like, structural, cultural, ideological things that we're butting up against with this vaccine rollout. So here are the major questions to ask going forward, I would say, is how will this crisis shape and reshape the federal government? At every turn in American history, when there has been a major crisis, the federal government has reconstituted itself in a new way. So that's what we should be keeping our eye on for the next four to eight years, because everything we've just talked about isn't necessarily going away. It's going to have to be dealt with. Now, the question you have to ask yourself is if anybody in charge is actually interested in governing. Yeah. And when I look around, I am not convinced that that is the case. I must say my experience of watching the inauguration was disheartening to say the least. So, I think this is a very much a more to be revealed scenario. There are going to be no easy outs to what's happening right now, not just on a technical level, but on a like historical political level for the United States. Yeah, I think it's it's worth emphasizing that, particularly in the biosecurity uh, kind of context that we live in um, and that sort of defense orientation that the U.S. has toward this kind of problem in general that things could get really weird really fast and in unproductive ways. Um, particularly if it does turn out that one of these variants is more pathogenic and that the vaccines are having more problems. Yeah, I think you want to keep a very close eye on what the authorities are doing because um, it's not likely to be anything that's good for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in terms of running your life, This is like my major conclusion. I've had to think about what's worth spending my time on. Like, what am I really doing to contribute to society? And I'm not going to give any like super personal answers on that right now. But I would say that beginning to ask those questions and to think beyond the horizon of my own lifetime is one of the most important things that's happened to me over the course of this year. I can't pretend to be a super virtuous soul. I do not know if I am. That is not up to me. But I am certainly feeling morally challenged by that question itself. And I would invite more people to at least entertain it for an extended period of time. Because if you're taking seriously everything that we've just laid out and you think it's real, like you're convinced by what we've just said, then uh, I hope you feel uncomfortable because I certainly do. That's the call and response of responsibility. Yeah, I, I think that maybe the only thing that I would add is just from from reflecting on uh, my own role as a parent um, over the last little while, 
Uh, I think thinking about the way that you're spending your time is is really important if you are a parent. Um, I think the era when you know you could kind of trust the social contract that you're going to go to work and that the education of your child is going to be taken care of by the state and they're going to be shepherded through their life by a series of well-meaning liberal institutions, that's over. You need to be thinking very carefully about the way that you're spending your time and how your uh, children are going to um, look at your example and and benefit from it or not benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so we'll end it on that extremely uh, based and trad note. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Mike, thanks for coming on again. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, no, you're a busy guy, so we really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. And stay safe out there, folks. Uh, it's going to get weirder. So see you next time. Mm-hmm.